How many are happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Can you say amen? Amen, amen. amen. What a wonderful day it is to be alive. What a wonderful day it is to serve the Lord. There's no better time than now. I have somewhat of a sobering word for you today, somewhat of a sobering word, so uh, get ready. Get your hearts and minds ready to hear something that might not tickle your ears. It's timely. It's timely. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. I want to talk to you about the wise and the foolish. Turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 25. I'm going to read from the New King James Version, the New King James Version. Matthew, chapter 25. We're going to read 13 verses because we're not superstitious at all. I ain't scared. This is what it says. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, say delayed, delayed. they all slumbered, say slumbered, slumbered, and slept. I didn't tell you to say that one, but that's okay. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Verse 7. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Nope lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Yeah. Precious Heavenly Father, I pray today in the name of Jesus that you would wake us up and that Amen. you would give us wisdom. Amen. I pray it in your holy name. Amen. Amen. I'm just going to jump into this passage. The passage begins in verse 1 by saying, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like unto. First of all, why does he start with the word then? Because chapter 25 of Matthew is a continuation of his discourse from chapter 24. And if you read the entirety of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is talking about the signs of the end of the age. And it begins to intensify as you get down towards the end of chapter 24. He tells the parable of the fig tree. And then he, tells the par he talks about uh, two men walking in the field and one taken and the other left. Two women grinding at the mill and one taken and the other left. And that whole passage culminates with verse 44. Matthew 24, 44. Therefore, you also be ready 
For in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man is coming. Now, I know that verse by heart because when I was in high school, we had a chaplain named Brother Ed. Brother Ed did chapel every day for an entire school year. And every day of that school year, he would make us quote that verse. And he, I mean, just like at random times, he'd be talking about something, and then all of a sudden he'd say, Therefore be ye also ready. It was the King James Version. For in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. He taught us that verse the first week, and then every single day in chapel made us quote it at random times. We'd be in the middle of a song, and he would stop the song. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. And then he'd be doing announcements, and in the middle of the announcements, therefore be ye also ready. And every day for an entire school year, he drilled that that verse into our hearts and minds. And at the end of that school year, he died and went home to be with the Lord. I can tell you for a fact that even people in that room who did not walk with the Lord and are not walking with the Lord can't forget that verse. Because here was the brilliance of Brother Ed. We never knew when the verse was coming. That's what he was doing was, at an hour you think not, you're going to quote this verse. I'm going to use the way in which I teach you the verse to teach you the truth of the verse. you got to be ready because it's coming. There is a core truth to the Christian faith that in our sloppy agape, Jesus loves me, this I know, all about me, Christianity, we forget. Because we think the heart of the Christian faith is come to Jesus and he will forgive you of your sins and heal you of your sicknesses and bless your finances and bless your job and give you the perfect husband or the perfect wife or some beautiful kids, a nice home, two, three hots and a cot. You know, he will bless you. That's what it's all about. And we forget that at the heart of the message of the Christian faith is Jesus is coming. Yeah. That's the message. Yeah. He is coming personally. Yeah. He is coming And if you take all of the New Testament documents and put them together and read through them all at once, you cannot help escape the fact that the entirety of the New Testament message was written to empower believers in Jesus Christ to deal with the extended period between the first and second coming of Jesus. To deal with the extended period between the first and second coming of Jesus. And here's the great problem. That the Holy Spirit in the writers of the New Testament perceived, and we see it already in Jesus, that it is so easy for us to lose our sense of urgency in the face of an extended delay. The Holy Spirit knew that this delay was going to mean that the people of God would lose their sense of urgency, lose their sense of expectation, Lose the sense of the imminence of the coming of Christ. If you go to the early church and look at how they lived, every day they woke up thinking, Jesus could come back today. I better be ready. I better be ready. In their morning prayer time, they were getting ready for the coming of the Lord. And in their afternoon time of devotion, and they would get ready for the coming of the Lord. And every night when they would lay on their bed, lay, lay, before they would lay down to sleep, they would pray to get ready for the coming of the Lord. Do you know what the most prominent prayer in the early church was? Maranatha. Which means, Lord, come. Lord, 
come. It was a prayer of expectation. Jesus, come. Jesus, come. We're waiting for your coming. At the heart of the Christian faith is not ethics, not morality, not doctrine, not teaching, not religion, not a series of do's and doints, doints, do's and don'ts. Not church, but Jesus himself coming for his people. And this is the core truth that we don't like to talk about very much because it's offensive. When he comes, he's taking with him those who believe in him and he's leaving behind those who don't. ready Jesus says then the kingdom of heaven is like unto Matthew chapter 24 ends with this parable of the foolish servant the master calls this servant and says I'm going on a vacation a business trip whatever it is I'm leaving you in charge of my household here's all of the resources of my house I need you to feed my servants I need you to care for my house I'm coming I'll be back. The master leaves. At first, the servant is doing his job. He's going right down the list. He's following the to-do list. He's obeying the master. He's taking care of the house. But then it says the master was delayed. There was a delay. And in the the face of the delay, the servant lost his sense of urgency. And what he did was he started beating his fellow servants. And then he started drinking with the drunkards. Because it's not a big deal. The master left me here with all this, said he'd be back. He ain't coming back. And then it said, at an hour when the man was not expecting, the master came back and saw what he was doing. And it says, cut him in two, allotted him his portion with the hypocrites. And it says, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now we go to chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like unto All of the parables of Jesus that we find in the Gospels are about the kingdom of heaven. The point of the parables is that at the core of the burden of the preaching and ministry of Jesus is he wants us to know what the kingdom of heaven is like. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like unto ten virgins who went to meet the the bridegroom. Now this whole parable is about the way they did weddings in the ancient world. I've done two weddings. Well, I've been to two weddings this weekend. I did one and a half. I went to one on Friday and another one yesterday. And um, the one on Friday, something so distressing happened. It started on time. (laughs) How inconsiderate. Don't ever start your wedding on time. That's inconsiderate to your guests. The second one started about an hour and 45 minutes late, so they made up for the first. I felt more comfortable with the second. (laughs) I'm just kidding. They were both beautiful. Yeah, my wife, she loves things on time. Time, let's do this. But the way we do weddings is not the way they did weddings in the ancient world. In the ancient world, especially in ancient Israel, you didn't know what time the wedding started. You just had to be ready. The wedding party had to be ready for the groom to show up in a moment's notice. Yeah. When did the wedding start? When the groom showed up. 
When was the groom coming? You don't know. You just got to be ready. And so the wedding party would make preparations and then they would wait. And sometimes the broom, the, the broom, the groom, I'm tired. Two weddings, I got another one tonight. I'm tired. Because <laughs> they jumped the broom at the end of the wedding yesterday. So you can tell there were some black folks. They jumped that broom. The groom would sometimes delay his coming purposefully just to see who's going to be ready when I come. Now, there was this group of ten virgins. Basically, the way it would work is these younger unmarried women would be on the preparatory committee. Their job was to set everything up and then be ready for the coming of the groom. And literally, you had to have lamps because he might come in the middle of the night. If he comes in the middle of the night, you got to light your lamp and then go out and meet the groom and host him in. And when they see lights surrounding the groom on the horizon, everybody knows it's time for the wedding feast. It doesn't matter if it's in the middle of the night. The feast starts the moment the groom arrives. But we're looking for lights on the horizon. The wedding party surrounding the groom with their lamps lit. And that's the sign to everyone else that the wedding is beginning. And there was this group of virgins, young ladies. Five of them were called wise, and the other were called foolish. Notice five of them were not called good and the other five evil. Because that whole thing about good and evil, yin and yang, that's a modern consideration. At the end of the day, Jesus is not looking at the good and the evil. He's looking at the wise and the foolish. He already established that, didn't he? Therefore, if anyone hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, he's like a wise man. Not a good man, a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rains came down. And the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But if anyone hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, he's like a foolish man, not an evil man, a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. And then he ends by saying, let him who has an ear, let him hear, meaning The distinction between the wise and the foolish is that the wise hear. These wise virgins, notice all ten of them actually had lamps that were lit. The difference between the wise and the foolish was not that they had lamps. They all had lamps. Was not that their lamps were lit. All of their lamps were lit. The difference between the wise and the foolish is that the wise brought extra oil. They were prepared for an extended wait. They were prepared for a delay. 
They were ready. They did not force God into their time frame, into their schedule. They didn't have expectations that, God, if you don't do it by this time, if you don't show up by this time and do this, I'm out. No, they had no expectations, no obligations to put on the groom. You show up when you're good and ready to show up. You do what you are good and ready to do. Your time, not my time. I brought extra oil because I don't know how long we're going to be waiting, but however long we need to wait, I'm ready to wait. I'm prepared for the delay. The foolish virgins only had enough oil for right now. You know, they say he's a right now God. He's more than a right now God. He's back then, right now, and will be. He's the God who was, who is, and who is to come. The wise virgins were ready for the wait. Are you ready for the wait? How many people have abandoned their faith because they weren't ready for the wait? How many people have walked away from the church because they weren't ready for the wait? How many people have walked away from their marriages because they weren't ready for the wait? Weren't prepared for a delay. Weren't prepared for God to do later what I hoped he would do now. Weren't even ready for God not to do what you wanted him to do. See, we got to be ready not just for what God's going to do. We also got to be ready for what God's not going to do. We got to be ready not just for what God speaks, but what for God is not going to speak. Not only ready for his coming, but for his not coming. And here's the key. You're ready for his not coming when you can continue to expect his coming with no decrease in enthusiasm. Despite a long delay. That's faith. That's faith. I still believe. Took longer than I thought, but I still believe hasn't happened yet. I still believe. I thought it would happen by now, but I still believe. I didn't get what I asked for, but I still believe. That's wisdom. You want to understand the difference between wisdom and foolishness? Read the book of Proverbs. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about. There's really two key characters in the book of Proverbs. The first character is the wise man, and the second one is the fool. The fool is also called the sluggard. And he's also called the stupid man. (laughs) Just read the book of Proverbs. You won't get past the first chapter before you understand the distinction between the two. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. One of the verses in Proverbs says, The fear of the Lord prolongs one's life. Another verse says, a wise man fears and departs from evil, but the fool rages and is confident. What tends to be lost in a long delay is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the knowledge that I still got to deal with God. God hasn't forgotten me. He's still watching me. He sees everything I do. He sees everything I think. He hears everything I say. And he's coming. 
And if that doesn't cause me to tremble, I've lost my fear of the Lord. If that doesn't cause me to live circumspectly, I've lost my fear of the Lord. If that doesn't cause me to repent when I need to repent, I've lost my fear of the Lord. The wise virgins had a healthy fear of the groom. If he shows up and I ain't got oil in my lamp, I'm going to be left out in the cold. The foolish ones were like, who knows if he's even coming. Then it says, they all went to sleep. The wise and the foolish ones. We like to talk about this whole idea that, you know, you got to stay awake. No, sometimes you got to go to sleep. (laughs) Wise and the foolish. Look at this. Verse 5, but while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. All of them. The difference was that the wise slept ready. And the foolish slept unready. The wise were asleep, but they knew if he comes while I'm sleeping, when I wake, I'll be ready. I've got everything ready. The moment he calls, I'm ready to answer. The moment he speaks, I'm ready to respond so I can sleep in peace. Sometimes the sign that you're not ready is that you don't sleep. Because you're up all night long tossing and turning because you know that some of the decisions that you made are not right. Sometimes the sign of readiness is that you can sleep. That Jesus, he goes down under the boat and falls asleep in the middle of the storm. Why? He can sleep in the middle of the storm because he's sleeping ready. The disciples are on the deck of the ship. They're awake in the storm, but they're not ready. Some folks are awake and unready and other folks are asleep and ready. Being ready. you go to your core longing, your core desire, the thing that you've asked God for the most, do you stop and ask the question, am I actually ready for this? You who are asking God for a wife, are you ready for a wife? (laughs) Have you spent any time getting ready? Or have you spent all your time asking God to give it to you? Are you ready for a husband? Have you spent any time getting yourself ready for a husband? Or are you just crying out, God, give me one? I've been asking God for financial blessing. Are you ready for financial blessing? What are you going to do with it? Why do you want it? Are you ready for a promotion? You've been asking God for a promotion. Are you ready for a promotion? I believe that if we spent more of our time getting ourselves ready and less of our time crying crying to God about what we want that we don't have, God would recognize our readiness and release things into our lives according to his time schedule and according to our readiness. Stuff you wouldn't even have to ask for. God is simply waiting for you to be ready. And when you're ready, boom, God said, you didn't even ask for it, but your father knows what you have need of before you ask. Verse 6. And at midnight cry was heard. Behold, 
the bridegroom is coming, go ye out to meet him. This whole metaphor is the metaphor of our salvation. Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We're going to go out to meet him. We're not even going to wait for him to touch down. We're going to be taken up into the sky to meet the Lord in the air. How crazy is that? The cry is heard, and it says, at midnight, which to us is precisely 12 a.m. That's not what midnight was in ancient Israel. It was literally the middle of the night. Because midnight, you're still watching Netflix. They weren't watching Netflix Midnight was the middle of the night, meaning it was the time of the night when you were not just asleep, but at your deepest point of sleep. When you were completely unaware. Which means that they had zero time of preparation. When he finally decided to come, no time of preparation. No time to run to the stove real quick. Pick up some oil. You either had it or you didn't. Whoever told you that it's never too late lied to you. It's never too late. Well, right now. But if you think that that extends out into eternity, you have no fear of the Lord. But secondly, even right now, because nobody promised you tomorrow. At midnight, he waited for the hour that no one expected him. That's what a delay does. A delay decreases expectation. He waited until expectation was at zero. Then he came. There have been so many movements over the centuries of individuals who thought they had calculated the date of the coming of the Lord. All the way to the second century, the Montanists were the first group. Montanists said he had calculated the date of the coming of the Lord, and all of his followers sold all their possessions, gave all the money away, put on white garments, went out into the desert of Phrygia, and waited for the descent of the New Jerusalem. They're still out there. No New Jerusalem. Joachim of Fiore, the 11th century, there were a bunch of these movements over the years. Harold Camping in the 20th century, the late 20th century, calculated it. Something like September 12, 1994. And then after that didn't happen, no, he recalculated it. No, it's 1999. Thinking that you can calculate the date of the coming of the Lord misses the point entirely. Because the point is that he comes at an hour when you think not. So if you think he's coming at that hour, you missed it. He delays his coming until expectation is at zero. What he's looking for is readiness. You cannot live in 24-hour expectation. But you can live in 24-hour readiness. Yeah. 
ready. We're coming back to that point in a second. Watch this, verse 7. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Actually, in the Greek, it literally says, Have gone out. It's past tense. The oil that we had when we first started this journey is gone. Give us some of your oil. Why did they have any expectation that the wise virgins would be able to give them some of their oil? I'll tell you why. Because there's this whole thing about Christian fellowship where really the definition of fellowship is joint ownership, where we just share what we have. See, I can share my encouragement with you and you can be encouraged. I can share some revelation with you and you can be inspired. I can share, you know, I can pray for you, and you can pray for me. When I'm down, you can pray for me, and I can get encouraged. And if you're full of the Holy Spirit, and I'm just walking through a, a dry season, you can pray for me, and something will come on me. And There's this whole concept of sharing and fellowshipping, and, and you know, what I have, I give to you. What you have, you give to me. And that's, that's what fellowship's all about. That's what we experience in the local church. You need prayer, come to the altar. Somebody's going to lay hands on you. What that presupposes is that there is a communicability to the things of the Spirit of God. What it presupposes is that if you need prayer and you allow some people, the people of God, to pray for you, whatever is in the people of God that's not in you can come into you, that you can receive from the blessings of other people. The five foolish virgins simply believed that they could rely on the community to fill the entirety of their spiritual void. I don't have to pray. I just got to be in a place where other people pray, and I just ask somebody to pray for me, and I feel better. I don't have to study the scriptures. I just got to be around people who do. Give me a word. I don't have to hear from God. I just got to know people who hear from God. And there's this kind of freeloader mentality. You understand what I'm talking about? Where I come to church simply to receive all the stuff that I'm too lazy to actually get for myself. I don't spend five minutes seeking God for myself. I don't spend one minute opening up his word and reading a single scripture for myself. But I want to come to church and just soak it all in. The worship team did all the practicing and they, they came on Saturday and they practiced for hours and they prayed and they fasted and then they got here early and sound checked at 8.30 a.m. Now they just give serve me the worship and I just receive it. Then we go home with that mentality and what we need to worship. I want to worship too. What do you do? You turn on YouTube and you look for Maverick City and let Maverick City worship for you in your home. And you ain't worshiping. You ain't singing nothing. You're letting, you just Dante Bow and, you know. Chandler Moore, just let him sing. You got, you've delegated the entirety of your Christian life to other people. You go to the church prayer meeting and just let other people pray. And then Jesus comes, and the moment of his coming, you've gotten so used to depending on everyone around you for the entirety of your faith that you think that you can continue to just grab somebody else's coattail and ride it into the kingdom. And there's a point at which the believer to your right or to your left will look at you and say, oh, no, my brother, you're going to have to get your own. Yeah. Yeah. 
this I can't share with you. That at the core of the Christian life is something that is non-communicable. Something that nobody can give you. Something that nobody can share with you. Something that nobody can transfer to your account. Something that nobody, nobody, not your mama, not your daddy, not your grandmama, no matter how much faith they had, no matter how much they prayed for you, it won't do you a lick of good when it comes to the fact that you have to stand before God by yourself. And he's not going to look at how many services you attended or how many songs you listened to. He's going to want to see what happened in your heart. Is there oil in your lamp? And at the last minute, they waited all this time. At the last minute, they decided to go get spiritual. And it was too late. The early church, in every one of their meetings, they prayed the Maranatha prayer. Maranatha. It's not a Greek term. In the New Testament, it's a Greek transliteration of an Aramaic term, a compound Aramaic term. Mara means Lord. Nata means come. Lord, come. Maranatha. Maranatha. And when they prayed the Maranatha prayer, they meant two things by it. Number one, we're waiting for you to come and finish this thing up. We're waiting for you to come and establish your kingdom on earth. We're waiting for you to come and fulfill everything that the prophets foretold. We're waiting for you to come and bring the kingdom of your God and king and bring about a new heaven and a new earth. We're waiting for you to come and bring about the end of the age. We're waiting for you. We love your appearing. But the second thing they meant is, but in the meantime, come today by your Holy Spirit and move in this place. And do something among us that goes beyond our expectation. Come, Lord, come and heal right here. And see, we tend to pray the second prayer, but not the first one. We would love for him to come heal, but the whole idea of him coming and finishing and wrapping up the age, descending from heaven with a shout, behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. We've almost abandoned that concept that sounds foreign to many of us. Fact of the matter is, if you're not ready for the first Maranatha, you're actually not ready for the second Maranatha. Did you hear that? If you're not ready for the first Maranatha, you're actually not ready for the second Maranatha. Because all the second Maranatha is, is a foretaste of the first Maranatha. Every time he shows up in our midst and heals and delivers and sets free and blesses and touches and reveals something of his glory, every time and in every way he reveals himself to us in the corporate gathering, it is a sign and symbol of what it's going to be like when the Lord himself, it's a foretaste, it's a first fruits. You see, my mother used to cook soul food. 
I loved when she made collard greens. I could smell them outside playing with my brothers, and I'm playing with my brothers in the backyard, and it's almost like that you could see it. It's like the cartoons where I would just float into the kitchen. I'd be like, Mom, you making greens? Yes, I'm making greens, son. I'd say, well, can I, just, can I just get a taste? And she would grab that fork and stick it down into that pot and come up with one fork full of greens. And you got to blow it because it's too hot. Yeah. Got to cool it down a little bit. See, before God gives you the things of the kingdom, he cools them down just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. They will burn you. Yeah. And she stuck it in my mouth. And then she said, now go outside and play. It's not the whole meal, but it's a taste of the final meal. It's a fork full of greens. When the Holy Spirit comes and heals, that's a fork full of greens. When you feel the presence of God in the service, that's a fork full of greens. When the Holy Spirit comes and delivers, that's a fork full of greens. When somebody gets saved, that's a fork full of greens. Everything that you pray for, that you cry for, when God actually does that stuff, he's giving you a fork full of greens. He's giving you that fork full of greens to just give you an indication of what that final meal is going to be like. That final meal in the kingdom of heaven when many will come from the north, south, east, and west and sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. There shall be no more sorrow and no more suffering and no more sickness and no more tears for God himself shall wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death for the old order of things has passed away. That is the final meal. The last enemy to be defeated is death. That is the final meal. The question is, are you ready? Because if you're not even willing to taste of the fork full of greens, you're definitely not ready for the final meal. Your hunger for the final meal is depicted in your hunger for the fork full of greens. Some of you haven't even asked God for a taste. Your hunger doesn't carry you into the, temp- into the kitchen, into the temple of the Lord, where you begin to ask him, give me a taste. You see, this is how you know you're ready for his coming when you're praying for his coming. When you're praying for his coming now, when you begin to ask him for the fullness of the Holy Spirit, when you begin to ask him for that foretaste. Hunger for God is a sign of your readiness. Desire for God. Desire for him in the now. Desire for him to show up here. Desire when you go home, your desire for him to show up in your home, that's a sign of your readiness. That's a sign that you're ready for him because if you're ready for him to come today, then you're ready for him to come tomorrow. Come on, somebody. God wants to restore our urgency. He wants to to restore the knowledge of his eminence. He is coming. These are the words that hover over the life of every believer, that hover over the entire church of Jesus Christ. He is coming. He is coming. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. He is coming. 
Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye shall see him. He is coming. He is coming, but he's coming at an hour that you do not expect. You don't know the day nor the hour, but you know that he's coming. And I don't care that the delay has been 2,000 years. It's no different today than it was 2,000 years ago. He's still coming. He has not forgotten. He has not failed. He is still coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? One thing I can say right now is it's not too late to get ready. It's not too late to get ready. It's not too late to get ready. You simply got to buy some oil for your lamp. Now, oil is a symbol of two things. First, it's a symbol of separation. In the temple, you read about this in Exodus and the, the tabernacle. You read about this in the book of Exodus where they took the implements that went into the tabernacle and even the priests themselves and they anointed them with oil. And whatever you put the oil on was separate. It was set apart. They would have bowls and spoons. They put oil on the bowls and spoons, which meant these, these bowls and spoons are separate. You don't take them home and use them to eat with your family. They're only to be used in the house of God. They're separate. These priests are separate. Yeah. This tabernacle space, the altar, is separate. It signifies separation. Yeah. The oil in your lamp represents sanctification. It represents your willingness to set yourself apart. Yeah. And secondly, it symbolizes the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. We see this new usage in terms of power in two ways. In the Old Testament, when they anointed kings. Yeah. The anointing oil that came upon a king indicated his divine authority to rule. Separation and power. Oil in your lamp is the power of the Holy Spirit to separate you and to empower you. And you got to buy it. This is the great paradox of the Christian faith. It's free, but you got to buy it. It's free, but it'll cost you everything. Somebody come to the, the piano. I'm, I'm getting ready to close. I know I've gone long. It's free, but you've got to buy it. Yeah. How do you buy it? Let me tell you what it'll cost you. The price is hunger yeah. and thirst. Yeah. All you got to do, you buy it with your hunger and your yeah. thirst. That's how you pay for it. You just want it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be filled. That's the only question. Are you hungry? Ho, everyone who thirsteth, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come by and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money. And without cost. Why spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Yeah. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul shall delight in the richest affair. How do you buy it? You just gotta be thirsty. Yeah. Everyone who thirsteth, 
And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. If there's something that the Holy Spirit would open up on the inside of you that just says, Lord, I'm hungry. I want that oil of the Holy Spirit. That oil that separates me. I want that oil. I want that. I want oil in my lamp. That separating power of the Holy Spirit that sanctifies me and cleanses me and separates me from stuff that would tarnish me, separates me from stuff that would defile me in this delay. Separate me from that stuff, God. Oh, I need your Holy Spirit. I'm hungry for the Holy Spirit to separate me. And I'm hungry for the Holy Spirit to empower me. Give me power. I'm tired of living this sloppy, agape, weak, powerless, odorless, tasteless, colorless Christian faith that don't do nothing. I'm tired of having a form of God in this, but denying its power. I'm tired of having a lamp with no oil in it. I've got a lamp that represents my Christian life, but there's no oil in it. There's no power in it. I'm hungry today. I'm thirsty. That's all. That's all. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. 